You know, uh, going back to uh, sound choices, I, I should have mentioned this a moment ago, it, it meant a whole lot to me. Uh, we've been doing a lot of uh, just sort of cleaning out rooms in the church. And uh, somebody found the very first newsletter that we ever put out uh, concerning, at that time it was called the Crisis Pregnancy Center. I believe this was back in uh, 81. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll bring that uh, to a service uh, during this emphasis and uh, read that to you. It will, uh, it will bless you. Uh, to see how God from the earliest days was uh, using that ministry. And as uh, many of you know, we were the first church in the nation to establish a pregnancy center. And we, and we prayed uh, that God would use our ministry as a model uh, to establish a network of pregnancy centers across the nation. And uh, we saw that happen, where we had the opportunity uh, to be involved in the establishment of hundreds of other pregnancy centers across the nation. But if you would have asked me what was the very first group that we ever worked with to establish a center, I could not have told you, but it's in that newsletter. It was Evergreen Baptist uh, uh, Church uh, here in Georgia, different city, of course. And it was just a joy to read that and, and to reflect on our history and how God has blessed and been so faithful uh, to that to that work. Uh, now, beginning in June, I will start a new uh, sermon series. Uh, matter of fact, that sermon series will be on a very special grouping of 15 psalms that are known as the Psalms of the Degrees. Uh, it begins at Psalm 120, goes through Psalm 134, and I'll take each one of those psalms uh, each week. So it'll be a 15-week uh, study. Well, probably 16 weeks. I'll probably take the first week to introduce the 15 psalms and uh, why they are special. And then we'll take e one psalm each week walking through that. Uh, so today, uh, I needed a standalone message since we completed our series on what Jesus looks for in a church from Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And as you see in your... Uh, sermon notes, I decided on a message entitled, Climbing Out of the Pit of Depression. Now, why a message on depression? Because over the last month, I have talked with a number of people in our church who have been wrestling with depression. And of course, we know that depression is a malady of the soul that afflicts every person at one time or another. So look at the beginning of your sermon notes at my definition for depression. I'm not saying it's the most accurate, but uh, it's the one that I like to use. Uh, depression is a debilitating feeling of helplessness and hopelessness which results in a person withdrawing from responsibilities and relationships. Please circle the word withdrawing. That is a key word for me and the definition that I'm providing you. Notice I am not defining depression as merely fighting feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. But when you succumb to those feelings by withdrawing from your responsibilities 
and from the important relationships in your life, including your relationship with God. Full-blown depression is when you give up in the fight, when you conclude there is no hope, there is no help, and you throw in the towel. You conclude you have fallen into the pit of depression and there is no way out and life is no longer worth living. As you see in your notes, we're going to examine a biblical case study of depression, and that is the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. I'm not trying to say this is the only lesson we can gain from uh, chapters both 18 and 19. I'm not even saying it's the primary one, but I do think it is a lesson that we can glean from in this portion of Scripture. Now, I don't know how much you know about the prophet Elijah, But the argument could easily be made that outside of Christ, no person in the Bible had a greater faith in God or a greater courage to stand alone for God or a greater zeal for the glory of God. So even before we begin our lesson on depression, we learn if Elijah was not immune to depression, what? Nobody is. Virtually every great hero of the faith in the Bible struggled with depression. For example, just a casual reading of King David's Psalms reveals a frequent battle with depression. Psalm 38, here's an example. David wrote, I am bent over. And greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. My heart throbs. My strength fails. And the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. The prophet Jeremiah uh, became so depressed. In Jeremiah 20, he actually curses the man who announced with joy his birth to his daddy. He curses the man. You say, well, why? Well, let me share with you what Jeremiah wrote. He says, because he, that man that announced my birth, because he did not kill me before birth, so that my mother's womb would have been my grave. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? That is a man struggling with depression. And if you know anything about Jeremiah's ministry, this was a man that had uh, great bouts of disappointment, despondency, and depression. And even the apostle Paul struggled with depression. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 we read, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. And in chapter 6 he wrote, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us. He acknowledged his struggle with depression. Now, going back to Elijah, uh, we need to briefly, uh, and it will be a brief rehearsal of the life circumstances that uh, contributed to Elijah's depression. The king of Israel was evil 
Ahab, who is married to guess who? The infamous Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel led the children of Israel into idolatry and immorality through the worship of the false god Baal. Elijah confronts very boldly, very bravely, Ahab the king, and he tells him because of their sin, there will be no dew, there will be no rain in the entire nation of Israel until he, Elijah, says so. After three years of drought and famine, and also three years of Ahab searching for Elijah to kill him, Elijah takes the initiative and pops back up and confronts Ahab once more. He tells Ahab, gather the entire nation on Mount Carmel and you bring with them all 450 of the Baal prophets and, 400, and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Now, Asherah, in some versions of Baal worship, Asherah was Baal's mother, and others it was his wife. But either way, uh, uh, again, false worship. So picture the scene, and you need to. This is, this is striking. Picture the scene recorded in 1 Kings 18. Elijah literally standing alone for God against Ahab, the army of Israel, 950 false prophets, and the entire nation. Solitary Elijah standing alone for God. Elijah turns to the children of Israel and he says, how long will you halt between two opinions? How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If if Jehovah is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But stop trying to straddle the fence. The people respond with absolute silence. So Elijah proposes a contest. He suggests that the Baal prophets make an altar, that they kill an ox, cut the ox up, lay the pieces of the ox on wood, but with no fire. And Elijah will do the same. The Baal prophets will call on Baal. Elijah will call on Jehovah. Whichever God answers by sending fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice will be declared the true God. People of Israel shake their heads and say, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, we'd like to watch this. Elijah turns to the bell prophets and he says, have at it. You go first. They build their altar. They put their sacrifice on it and they commence praying to Baal. And they pray to Baal from morning until the evening sacrifice. And it, folks, is quite a show. I wish I could go into more detail. They do all sorts of gyrations around the altar. They're jumping and they're leaping and doing all sorts of crazy things. They get loud with their praying. 
They even take swords and lances and cut themselves. And their blood is literally gushing out all over them, gushing out all over the altar as they cry out to Baal. Elijah is watching all this. He begins to mock them. He says, well, maybe you need to, to pray even louder because apparently Baal must be on a, on a long journey or, or maybe he's uh, attending something else and you need to get his attention or, or maybe he's even asleep and you need to wake him up. Finally, Elijah says, my turn. He repairs an altar of the Lord that had been torn, torn down as a result of false worship. Using 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, he builds his altar and he lays the sacrifice of the ox on the altar. He then digs a huge trench around the entire altar and he pours water all over the altar, all over the sacrifice, all over the wood, not just once, but he does this three times. So much so that we're told that not only was the sacrifice and the wood drenched with water, but the water literally flowed around the altar and filled that trench up. Then Elijah prays to Jehovah. And it is a magnificent prayer. And I would encourage you uh, later today, read that magnificent prayer as he calls upon God to make himself known to the people. Uh, and as you know, fire falls from heaven, completely consumes the sacrifice, consumes the wood, consumes the stone altar, even the dust on the altar, the Bible says, and even licks up every bit of the water in the trench. The people see this. They begin crying out, yes, Jehovah is God. Elijah tells them to seize the Baal prophets, and every one of those prophets are executed. Elijah then tells Ahab the king that he better hurry down the mountain to his royal residence in Jezreel to celebrate. Why celebrate? Because Elijah says, rain is a-coming, and it's going to be very, very heavy showers. We're told that Elijah, on foot, outruns Ahab in his chariot to Jezreel, which was a distance of 20 miles. It is obvious Elijah is bathing, glorying in this magnificent victory that God has given. And it's obvious, I believe, he's expecting everything now to turn around, which brings us to the close of 1 Kings chapter 18. Then you move into chapter 19, and this is when it turns bad. Ahab makes it to Jezreel, and he shares with Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, and especially how he had killed all the Baal prophets. And you need to understand, she had a very special relationship with these prophets. We were told earlier in the scripture, they often ate dinner uh, with her. So she sends a message to Elijah, and this is how the message read. She said, so may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life 
as the life of one of them. Who's the one of them? The bell prophets that you executed by tomorrow about the same time. In other words, Jezebel is saying what? Elijah, I'm coming after you, and I'm taking you out for what you did. You're gone. Your life is over. That single statement from Jezebel burst all of Elijah's high expectations that everything was going to change for the good and plunged Elijah literally into a pit of depression. Now, with that background, look now in your notes to see how Elijah experienced all the classic symptoms of depression. And the first one there, and get this down in your notes as you fill in the blanks there, fear and flight. Fear and flight. What was his response to the message as he became downcast, disheartened, expectations crushed? Verse 3, he was afraid and arose and ran for his life. Folks, here is a classic panic attack, a classic anxiety attack. I mean, this is a man that stood alone before the entire nation and just a message from a single woman sends him a running. And folks, run he did. You need to understand that Jezreel, Jezreel is in the northern, uh, is in northern Israel, and he ran to Beersheba. You know where Beersheba is? It is in the southernmost portion of Israel, a distance of 100 miles. Matter of fact, Beersheba was the last stop before you left civilization and entered a desolate wilderness that could not sustain life. At Beersheba, Elijah leaves his servant. His servant traveled with him to that point, but he leaves his servant. Now he's totally alone, totally isolated, and he flees into that wilderness. We're told that he goes a day's journey into the wilderness, and finally he collapses under the weight of his depression as he lays under a juniper tree, which is just a desert shrub. So, Fear and flight. Look at the next classic sign of depression that he exhibited. What I call the failure complex. The failure complex. In verse 4 he said, For I am no better than my fathers. What he's referring to is the prophets that preceded him. He's saying, Just like the prophets that preceded me failed to turn Israel back to God, I have failed. And he turned totally negative towards himself, totally critical towards himself and his, and his ministry. There was nothing, nothing but negative, nothing but critical thoughts about himself. Uh, he began to think as everyone begins to think when they're struggling with depression. I I'm just a mistake. Everything I touch gets ruined. I'm just good for nothing. And that's where this man was. Not only fear and flight, not only failure, but look at the third thing, futility. And we're talking about futility to the point of desiring death. Futility to the point of desiring death. Notice also in verse 4, 
It says, he requested for himself that he might what? Die. And said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life. Circle the word enough. Have any of you ever been there in depression? I've had enough. I cannot take it anymore. This is beyond my ability. It is crushing me. Just let me die. Death would be preferable than this experience. And then look at the fourth thing, extreme fatigue. It says, and he lay down and slept under a juniper tree in verse 5. If you've ever suffered from severe depression, you know that it literally saps every bit of strength out of you. And this is where this man was. All that panic, all that anxiety, all that running, all those negative, everything eventually just caught up with him and just spent him, just exhausted him. Now look at the next question in your notes, and hopefully this will be one of the more instructive areas in this message. Uh, We need to ask, how did Elijah go from the mountaintop of victory on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 to the valley of defeat and depression in 1 Kings 19. I mean, that's one of the striking things about this story, how quickly he fell into his depression. But we all should be able to understand that. Life is often like what? A roller coaster ride where it's filled with ups and downs. The first thing, and Scripture doesn't tell us this, but I I think it's probably there, and if it's not there with Elijah, I think we will admit it's often there with us. He probably let his guard down. He let his guard down in the aftermath of a great victory. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Think of soldiers after winning a battle to take a town or a city that had been occupied by the enemy. So they attack the city, they beat back the enemy, and they occupy occupy that town. Those soldiers, and I'm not a soldier, and I probably ought to have had one of them to come up and share a testimony at this point, they know they cannot relax until they set up a perimeter defense around that city until they establish effective communications. Why? Because more than likely, a counterattack is coming from the enemy. And it is the same in spiritual warfare. We are often most vulnerable after a spiritual victory, after a spiritual high, because we tend to relax. We tend to let the guard down to the point where our relationship with Christ even begins to suffer, which makes us very vulnerable to the enemy's attacks. And you know the other problem? Let's be very honest. You know the other problem we face after experiencing a great mountaintop experience? We don't ever want to come down. I mean, I don't. You just don't ever want to come down. You you want to stop, and you want to live the rest of your life there. And what happens, we just 
get a whole distorted view of Christianity. We forget that we're on a journey with God. And He intends to take us from mountaintop to mountaintop, but between each mountain is what? A valley. And you can't get to the next mountaintop without descending the valley, into the valley. And it's often that descent that trips us up. As our expectations are dashed, as Elijah's was, we become disappointed, we become despondent in struggle. So it's very possible he let his guard down after a great victory. And again, this is something I know I have done many on many occasions, and I trust you would admit you have too, and this has made you very vulnerable to the enemy. Look at the second thing. And I think this may be the, uh, one of the more important points in the entire ministry, entire message. He did not think realistically or clearly about his situation. He did not think realistically or clearly about his situation. Again, how did Elijah in the same day actually in a matter of minutes, go from a courageous faith, standing alone for God against overwhelming odds, to running scared from a single woman. Faulty thinking. Bottom line, he left God out of the equation. Let me ask you a question. We said that depression is a debilitating feeling of hopelessness and helplessness that you succumb to and you withdraw from your responsibilities, you withdraw from important relationships, even your relationship with God. Let me ask you, are you ever, if, if you are a believer here this morning, you know the Lord Jesus Christ, are you ever truly hopeless and helpless? No, of course not. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Will tribulation separate you from the love of Christ? Will distress? Will persecution? How about famine? Nakedness? Great need? Poverty? Or peril? Or sword? No, it says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now listen, listen, beloved. Listen, 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 right here. The battle with depression will be won or lost in the mind. Right here. I am truly thankful, and I mean this very sincerely, because as a pastor, you work with hundreds of people over the years that struggle with depression. And I am thankful for medication that can be, that can be an aid in relieving the pain of depression. I'm so thankful for that. But I need to also say, popping a pill will not provide the ultimate answer. Not the ultimate answer. You must change your thinking. You must change your outlook. You must change your perspective on life. Those who fall victim to depression listen in their mind to negative and discouraging thoughts and they let those 
thoughts go unchecked and unchallenged. And if you let this go on long enough, do you know what happens? Now listen very carefully to this. You need to understand the dynamics here. Your conscience, which is the only line of defense you have against negative or unbiblical thoughts, becomes desensitized. And when that happens, you no longer have a barrier of defense against the negative thoughts. The negative thoughts begin to pour freely into your mind. And if they go unchecked, flooding over into your heart. And once they flood over into your heart, you believe those thoughts as gospel truth. You believe that is your identity. That is who you are. You are worthless. You don't have a life worth living and everything that Elijah experienced. So one of the keys, listen now, this will help you. One of the keys in overcoming depression it's to stop listening to yourself and to start talking to yourself. This is one of the greatest truths we see in the Psalms. Many, many, many of the Psalms is the psalm writer preaching God's truth to himself. Reminding himself of God's truth as he's going through a very difficult time. And he does that to correct erroneous thinking that he's struggling with. A good example is Psalm 42, where King David checks his feelings of despair by giving himself a good talking to. He writes, he says, why, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And what's his soul? His mind, will, and emotions. Why? Why are you depressed? Why are you despondent? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And in that one psalm, it's not a long psalm, he repeats that twice. And often, folks, we need to take God's truth and we need to repeat it to ourselves over and over and over and over again as we go through the day. We are in spiritual warfare. The devil is after you to bring you down, to weaken, to destroy your faith. And as long as the barrage is coming, as long as he's shooting at you, you've got to keep shooting back with God's truth. I can tell you, I have known times in my own personal life where the battle was so intense it was going on every minute of every day, even to the night, because you couldn't sleep. But when the devil finally realizes that all he's achieving by attacking you is driving you to God, driving you to his truth, building up your faith, building up your hope in God, becoming confident in God's love for you, he realizes there's no point in this line of attack. Now, doesn't mean he stops attacking. You understand that. He just takes another angle uh, to come against you. Uh, look at the third uh, mistake he made. He overestimated his own strength. And we do the same thing. He overestimated his own strength, that third point. Bottom line, this is what I'm saying. This is not a difficult one to understand. No one no one, I don't care who you are. I don't know how, 
how strong you are. No one can continually go full throttle without becoming physically exhausted and emotionally drained. You have to idle at times in life, just idle, to renew your strength. And if you do not find a proper balance between work and relaxation like Elijah, it's obvious you're going to eventually become burned out and depressed. Look at the fourth grave mistake that he made. He isolated himself from others. Notice where he ended up. In a wilderness. Alone. Even left his servant behind. Listen to this uh, verse out of the book of Proverbs. It says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. God never intended any believer to live the Christian life like a lone ranger. We need one another. I desperately need you. You I came to this church in 1977. And if I had the time, and I don't, because I only have about eight more minutes left, I could literally, right now, just the people sitting in this, I could go through and thank innumerable people that have encouraged me over the years, that God used to bolster my faith when I was struggling and depressed. That's one of the primary reasons we have the church family because we do desperately need one another. That's why the Bible encourages us as church family to come along one another's side and what? Pick one another up. Whisper prayers to one another. Words of, of, uh, of strength and in, encouragement. And so the worst thing you can do in, your, in depression, yet true, let's be honest, is what we all do when we're depressed. We, and and what, what typically is behind that? We feel ashamed. I feel ashamed that as a believer, that as a pastor, I'm struggling like this. And goodness gracious, if, if anybody finds out, I'm just going to lose all respect. They're not going to think I have anything to offer. That's the worst mistake any child of God can make. No one's going to disrespect you. They're going to understand because they're part of the human race too and they experience the same thing. Maybe not the same set of circumstances, maybe not to the same degree, but we can all relate to one another because we all struggle with the frailty of our humanity. And then look at the fifth thing. And oh, how we do this. He submitted to self-pity. He submitted to self-pity. Elijah sits under a juniper tree and he throws a pity party. And he even invites God to the party. Oh God, I've had enough. I'm a failure. Oh, just come take my life. Folks, I, I have been there. I can remember an experience in my Christian life uh, Years ago, well, I thought I was such a failure, 
I was traveling and I was in a hotel room and I threw myself in the floor and I said, God, I'm such a miserable failure. Would you please just take my life and nobody will know how miserable I was. That's exactly how I was thinking. And, uh, and, and, and so we, we plunge ourselves. And again, it goes back to those thoughts. When we let those negative, critical thoughts go unchallenged, unchecked, they pour in our mind, into our hearts, we believe that they're true, and that throws us into this self-pity. Now, this brings us to the question, what did God do to heal Elijah's depression? Now, I have so little time, and I did not anticipate this. I'm not going to be able to... Uh, go deep into the scripture. Let me basically work through the points. And then I, I'm asking you to take the notes and then uh, pair them with the scripture. Now, I'll refer to the scripture and we'll look at some, but I just don't know how much time we'll be able to have to go deep into this. So this brings us to the question, what did God do to heal Elijah's depression? So the first thing there, God ministered to Elijah's physical needs by providing him proper nutrition and adequate rest. Look at this next statement, so important. Sometimes the most spiritual thing a person can do is eat a good meal, get a good night's sleep, and get away for a few days of relaxation. Often that's the most spiritual thing that you can do because we all need that. We need those breaks. And, and notice God did that for him. Look at verse 5. He said... Uh, he said, he lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and he says, behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, uh, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Oh, he fell back asleep. He was so exhausted. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you, because God is about to send him to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, uh, to have an encounter uh, with, with him. So God ministered to his physical needs. See, there's a close relationship between our physical and emotional state. You understand that, right? There's a close, close relationship. All these doctors will tell you this between your physical and emotional state. G state, getting enough of the right kind of food, enough sleep, and sufficient exercise, while no guarantee against depression, it may help prevent it and will certainly keep the body in a better state to deal with it. And as mentioned earlier, we need to have a balanced life between work and relaxation. And, and did, you, did you ever think that Jesus even recognized this? How he often broke away. And he actually said to his disciples, come apart. You know what the rest of that reads? And rest a while. Come apart and rest a while. Here's reality. If you do not learn to relax, you're either going to be, here's your, here's your choices. A, you can either be a basket case, or B, you're going to be a casket case. Take your pick. Second, God ministered to Elijah's emotional needs by allowing him to freely vent his frustrations. At the heart of Elijah's depression, and at the heart often of our depression, was disappointment with God caused by unmet expectations. When God does not come through or act as we would have hoped him to have acted. 
I mean, after this amazing victory on Mount Carmel, I do believe Elijah thought everything was going to turn around. Everything was going to change. He was so zealous for the glory of God. And he was just convinced this is going to bring the nation back and everything's going to be changed. And all of a sudden, Jezebel's coming after him. And his expectations are, are dashed. And, and God allows him to vent. Look at uh, uh, chapter 19. Look at verses... Uh, uh, 9 and 10. And, this is, and then he came there to the cave. In other words, God sent him to Mount uh, Sinai. And uh, by the way, we don't know this for certain, but it's my understanding in the Hebrew text, it talks about the cave. And many Bible teachers believe that God took Elijah to the very cleft of the rock where he had Moses when he passed by, when Moses asked to see his glory and to know uh, his presence. And he said, and he lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Notice, God initiates the conversation. He opens the door. He, he wants to give his boy an opportunity to vent, and vent Elijah does. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And that was so true. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And then God asks him that same question again. In verse 14, he gives the same answer. And, and what, what I think is so wonderful here, and I've seen this in my own life with God, and I trust you've seen it in your relationship with God. God allows Elijah to talk about his frustrations, and God listens non-judgmentally. As Elijah just pours out his feelings of anger, bitterness, and self-pity. God did not provide the outcome Elijah was expecting. Elijah could not understand how a loving, all-powerful God could let this happen. That was Elijah's struggle then, and it's our struggle today, and God wants us to bring that struggle, what? To Him. Bring that struggle to Him. And when you do, let me give you a word of advice. God is, when you, when you vent, and you bring your frustrations, you bring your disappointment, when God hadn't met you, God is not going to gasp, <gasps> and say, oh, I'm so surprised, I would never have guessed that of you. No. He knows but he knows that the pain can only be endured as the struggle begins to be articulated. And that is the first step to healing, to begin to articulate the pain, to be honest, to be transparent about it, and not try uh, to hide it. And then notice the third thing, God ministered to Elijah's spiritual needs by taking him to church. And of course, that that's a figurative uses. There wasn't the church at that time, but uh, I, I use that in the sense that he took him to Mount Sinai to have this wonderful encounter. Uh, notice that the root of depression is a distorted view of God. At the root of depression is a distorted view of God and of ourselves. Worship, God's Word, and prayer are powerful antidepressants to correct our outlook on life and renew our joy. So again, I'll say that again. At the very root of depression is a distorted view, first and primary, of God 
and then of ourselves. And in worship, God's word and prayer are powerful antidepressants to correct our outlook on life and renew our joy. And notice those three bullet, uh, uh, those uh, five bullet points, and I'll just have time to run through these, and you'll have to run to the scriptures to uh, follow this up. First, God demonstrated to Elijah that the still, small voice of God speaking to the human heart is more powerful than miraculous displays of God's power. Yes, he saw a miraculous display of God's power on Mount Carmel, and Elijah saw many miraculous displays of God's power. This is one of the periods in the history of children of Israel. There were innumerable miracles, and, and they were done through the hand of Elijah. But God had to demonstrate and clearly communicate to Elijah, Elijah, that's not where victory is. It's not in the miraculous. It's in intimacy with me. It's in knowing me, hearing my voice, following me. So the cure of depression is not some great miracle from God. It is not getting the outcome you desire. The cure for depression is found developing an intimate relationship with Christ where you hear his still, small voice. And in that intimacy, you come to the place, and I think this is the most difficult place for every believer to get to, where you say, God... I'm no longer going to look for outcomes from you. Because by golly, I'm going to correct my thinking. You're the one that loves me most. That is true, Lord. I know that. Therefore, you know what is best for me. So why should I twist your arm to try to get the outcome I want when you know best? All I need to do is focus on you. All I need to do is get in your word, listen to your word. Obey your word, and I can trust you for the outcome. Amen? See, that's what trips us up. We're after outcomes, and when we don't get the outcome we want, we think God has let us down, separates us from God, plunges us into depression. Uh, numbers, that next bullet point, God corrected Elijah's false sense of importance as if God's work was dependent on Elijah. In fact, God had already chosen Elijah's successor, which was Elisha. And he indicates that there in that section as you read it on your own, in that encounter that he has. He lets him know, Elisha is your successor. And then notice the next bullet point. And I like this. When God affirmed the impact of Elijah's ministry, because the success of Carmel was so short-lived, Elijah viewed his ministry as a failure, but God pointed out 7,000 people. He does that in this encounter. 7,000 people scattered throughout the nation who remained true to God, not due to Elijah's miracles, but to the quiet influence of his godly example. So it's, Elijah, I am using you. Your life is making a difference. There are people watching And then notice the next bullet point. God gave Elijah something to do. He gives him the task to anoint uh, the next kings. He says, God basically tells Elijah, get back to work. I've got a job for you to do. Make yourself useful. And that's one of the best bits of advice you can give to anybody that's depressed. Get off your bottom and start helping somebody else. Because depression, we tend to isolate ourselves. 
we withdraw from responsibilities, withdraw from relationships. You cannot succumb to those feelings. You cannot succumb to those thoughts whether you feel like it or not. You do it out of obedience to demonstrate your love to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice God gave Elijah a friend. He wouldn't be isolated anymore. He gave him Elisha who walked with him for a good long while before, of course, God took Elijah. And by the way, to show God's love for Elijah, did Elijah ever die? No. That shows us what God thought of Elijah, how he affirmed the life of of this man. And although he struggled with depression, to the extent that we see in this message, uh, God did not give up on him, and God continued to use him, and God continued to bless him. Amen? Well, as the invitation is extended today, I, I trust this message is spoken to you. We all struggle with depression. I hope there's something that uh, you can take from this that will be beneficial to your own life as you struggle with uh, depression, as you struggle with disappointment and despondency. And I, I trust you'll take the notes, you'll go further into those scripture passages uh, later today or sometime uh, this week. Uh, Of course, if you've been visiting the church family, you desire to be a member, we would invite you at this time of invitation. Make your way down to the front. Indicate that to me just so we can get your face before the people so we begin to love on you, begin to pray for you, and then we'll take you through the full process of membership. Or uh, like Ansley, you've made a profession of faith and you want to share that with the church family to demonstrate you're not ashamed of Christ. You desire to follow him and be our joy to help you uh, as you uh, begin your walk with God Uh, to know uh, his truth and uh, lessons that can uh, aid you in your growth. So please stand as the invitation is extended. And and again, you don't have to leave your pew to respond to the truth that you've heard today. The message is not over until it's been obeyed and applied. 